Out of Tuners. I'm Erin. I'm Victoria. And I'm Rebecca. And this is Out of Tune. Back again (laughs) for our third episode in our symphony series, which is very wonderful. And this week we have Rebecca um, hosting this episode. So I am very excited and I'm very excited to learn something new because I feel like I'm not going to know anything you're going to be talking about. So, <laughs> Oh, I'm really excited to share too. In one of our classes with Professor Mariana, we talked about Dvorak's New World, Symphony, Usable Past, and Cultural Appropriation. So today I'm, I'm going to be talking about those topics, but in a Brazilian context. Uh, we'll talk about Villa Lobos and the Brazilian indigenous music. So first, I'd like to start with a brief introduction about Villa Lobos. He was a Brazilian composer and conductor. He was born in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, in 1887. His father, Raul Lobos, taught him taught him how to play cello in an improvised viola with an improvised cello spike. Most of Villa's education was self-taught, except for three years that he went to the National Musical Institution in Rio de Janeiro. According to Paulo de Tarso Salles, his self-taught formation might be a negative factor for lack of information or access to information. However, this factor gave him the opportunity to be free from the aesthetics. When he was 12 years old, he was already playing cello professionally, and with 13, he was a member of the most famous group of Choro, that is a popular music genre in Brazil. He would go during the night, hidden from his mom and aunt. His mom wanted him to go to med school, not be a musician. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, during that time, he also learned to play the guitar. Through the influence of his aunt, Villa-Lobos got to know Bach, and that had a huge impact in his compositions. One of his most cycles nowadays are the Bachianos Brasileiros. Now we're gonna hear a little bit of the Toccata from the Bachianos Brasileiros number two.
So back to um, Villalobos. Um, he lived in different states and country towns that allowed him to experience different mu musical cultures. Okay, so now remember this. He also traveled a lot and during those trips, he supposedly collected material for his compositions. He participated in the Week of Modern Art in 1922, and it was one of the biggest movements that happened in Sao Paulo that marks, marked the beginning of the modernism in Brazil. But his music was not well accepted, though. People didn't like it. His early symphonies weren't well accepted either. In the rehearsals of the first symphony, the musicians complained that it was too dissonant and they just didn't want to play. <laughs> Eventually, he got married with a pianist, Lucilia Guimarães, that accompanied him on his first concerts. She also taught him the rudiments of the piano. Between 1922 and 1930, Villalobos traveled twice to Europe to promote his music. The first time it was sponsored by the government, the Brazilian government, and the second time by a businessman. There he had contact with music by Debussy, Stravinsky, Webern, and Vorez. It was during this time in Europe that he made his name famous. Well, remember how people back in Brazil didn't like his symphonies at first? It was only after he was recognized as a Brazilian composer in Paris that he became a reference in Brazilian popular music back in Brazil. Hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. Gabriel Ferreira Moreira affirms that it was the, f the construction of a Brazilian character that solidified the general impression about the composer. This built character was manifested by the Brazilian folklore and the indigenous music, with an emphasis on the exotic and savage. I will be diving in more in the indigenous music in the next minutes. Villa Lobos became famous for, her, for his originality in his music. He incorporated, incorporated different themes and cultures that are existing in Brazil in a very unique way. The indigenous music was an important part of his compositions. And because of that, he became the major representative of the Brazilian music in Europe and also in America later on. After coming back from Europe, he created a musical educational pro project and presented to different politics. Due to a cope in 1930, he was able to ally with the president, president Getulio Vargas, that made him the director of education of music. Getulio used Villalobos, now popular back in Brazil, to promote a nationalism through his music. Villalobos then created The Practical Guide, a book with popular themes that reached 40,000 scores at that time. Wow. During the final season of his life, he gave tours around the US and Europe and founded the Brazilian Music Academy. Also at this period, he left his wife while touring in Paris and got married to his student. And here's a tea that I thought you guys would like. <laughs> I was about to say, I want to know the gossip. <laughs> so 
the student was actually a she was also a pianist and she was actually accompanying him on this tour and during the tour he just sent a letter to his wife saying that he wanted to divorce oh my gosh that is spicy oh and my gosh the, and the the student was 20 years younger than him oh my that's a big yike <laughs> For any time period, that's a big yike. <laughs> well, uh, throughout his life, he composed 12 symphonies, um, 14 choros, 9 bacchanas, and uh, a bunch of other stuff. He, he composed concertos, um, uh, works for orchestra, string quartets, operas, movies, solo guitar, piano, and chamber music. I wanted to emphasize how important the popular aspect of his compositions because that led me to the next question where did he get the material from his, his compositions and that also came from the question the conversation that we had uh with our professor mariana about Dvorak. yeah this is all like mm -hmm. i feel like my um western musicology uh classes and stuff is i only really know anything like every, this, this entire time i'm just thinking of Dvorak, where i know that that's all we talk about kind of in this kind of realm of things yeah and it's and you're gonna see it's gonna get very similar mm. so here's the thing that i learned with this part of my research well, through my education in Brazil, I learned that Villa Lobos collected not only countryside and folk folklore songs, but also indigenous people songs. Mm. It's a very similar story from our guard Dvorak, right? But during one of our classes with Professor Mariana, we learned that Dvorak, different from what I knew beforehand, did not travel and collect the spiritual songs that influenced him to compose a new world symphony. And yes, that's the question that I'm going to ask. Did Villa Lobos travel the forests to the forests and to the woods to collect um, the indigenous material? Well, a lot of websites and academic uh, papers say so, but um, I discovered that it was actually not. He didn't travel, or at least not all the times that he said he did. Mm. Hmm. Um, Sir Gull believes that Villa Lobos might have traveled to collect material to use in his compositions. Vasco Maris, a musicologist and Villa Lobos researcher, affirms that only the first travel to the Amazonia state is confirmed. And he went really young, with 24 years old, as a cellist for an opera company. So it was not in the purpose of research. Hmm. The rest of the stories are very suspicious and musicologist believes that he personalized the adventures told by his brother-in-law that worked in a project with the tribe per Parisi in Mato Grosso. Huh. So, hmm. most of the th stuff that he said back then were, was actually his brother-in-law's stories. Yeah. Wow! Again, some, some more gossip though, I'm kind of loving it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was so shocked when I discovered that. And I was asking all my friends, did you know that? And a lot of them that actually didn't. Only the ones that uh, researched and had a little bit more 
Villa Lobos um, classes they knew. Mm. Well, um, Vasco Maris says that there is a lot of myth around Villa Lobos travels actually that supposedly influenced him to develop a nationalist aspect present in his music and that's the very characteristic that made him so well known so where did this, this material came from um one of the most famous episodes was that he would have made up a story to the french press mm. In this story, he would have been kidnapped by cannibalist indigenous people, but he was able to survive through his music. Wow. His music saved hmm. him. Wow. In fact, it was a friend of his of, uh, that worked for a French magazine that made that impactful story and published that so he could get a full house in his next concert. It's like marketing, yes. but like, sneaky. wow, sneaky, deceitful marketing. <laughs> Segel says that although a lot of stories aren't true, there are some proofs that he visited a few cities in the countryside of Sao Paulo state. Hmm. He did visit an indigenous tribe in the Amazonas state, but musicologists believe that he didn't collect as much material as he said he did. Now, I really want to know your opinion on that. How do you think, do you think that would um, affect somehow the nation nationalism? Do you think people back then would have changed their minds about, um, about the um, popular music if they knew that all those terms were not true i yeah well i would hope so i guess maybe that's a good question i don't know i would hope so i would hope that i don't know i feel like maybe i don't know how to answer your question because i'm going back and forth between like oh like the truth is always the most important thing especially when it involves um an a third party person taking ideas or using things from another certain group of people and and when that is done in a very fabricated way I feel like that to me has a negative impact or it would have a negative impact I think does that make sense yeah yes. that's where my brain first went but then I was thinking would it hurt nationalism though if they did that though you know there's like the right i don't know it's a very interesting question <laughs> i would say yes it reminds me of um in harry potter when professor Blackheart steals all the stories for his books and then once everybody i don't remember if the public in harry potter figures out it's all stolen information but i think yeah, they do Okay, so the public, no, but then he's like totally disregarded. So I wonder if the same thing would have happened. At least people who bought concert tickets because of the stories would have felt duped and like, caught. yeah, I feel like it, they would have felt cheated. Like, yeah. yeah. Or like, and also maybe there'd be more of a, um, like initiative to, to, to find out the real stories and to find out the true origination and, 
and things. Harry Potter is such a great example of that. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> well, I had to agree with you guys. Uh, when I read about that, my research kind of moved towards finding where he got that folklore indigenous uh, tunes from. And that's where I end up going. So according to Sir Girl, he took advantage of the material collected, collected by anthropologists and ethnological musicians. So he ended up not getting collecting himself, but using material that was already there. Mm -hmm. According to Luis Eitor Correa Azevedo, one of the sources Villalobos used was a book by Jean de Lahy, History of a Voyage to the Land of Brazil. In 1555, he was, he, Jean de Lahy, was in an expedition to Brazil seeking refuge from religious persecution. He ended up in Rio de Janeiro and there he lived with the Tupinamba tribe for two months until he was able to go back to France in the next ship loaded with Brazil wood. The book was first published 20 years after Lurie came back to Europe. Well, that book contained a lot of transcripts from Tubi tribe songs. Luis Azevedo believes that in this, uh, this is the first written book about Brazil and it had a good fortune of being well received all over Europe where it was published and several editions and translations. It contributed greatly to the portrayal of a noble savage, but a very European version of the indigenous people. Hmm. However, because it had so many editions, some editions had a really bad copying of the score, and some even didn't have the melodies at all. According to Luis Azevedo, the editions that had the musical transcription would also vary from one edition to another. In some cases, the differences were considerable, but in other, they had only the wrong placing of the clef on the stuff. <laughs> Could you imagine? Hmm. Well, that was one of Villalobos sources. Another one was the book Popular Songs from Brazil by the Brazilian singer and researcher Elsie Houston. She was a singer, percussionist, musicologist, and a mother. She was daughter of a North American with a Brazilian, and she was born in Rio de Janeiro in 1902. She lived in Brazil, U.S., France, Argentina, and Germany. Else lived ahead of her time. She dedicated her life to study and research popular themes of Brazil, also showing it to other countries, especially France. When living in France, she met the educator Robert Pernod that invited her to record the songs that she, uh, she had researched. Elsie's selection of songs includes different themes from various states of Brazil, but most important for my research, it contains the first recordings of indigenous songs made in Brazil. And wow. that was something that Villa Lobos had access to. Mm. Uh, through the Gomalaka project, they were able to re-record re those uh, songs. And we're going to listen now to the Parisi tribe chant. Mm -hmm. 
this one was the original track that Villa Lobos had contacted. Now let's listen to a new arrangement. so nice that was an arrangement and an adaptation by Bianca Maria Benazi so that was a little bit of what Villa Lobos had as a source to compose but he went beyond that he created a soundscape from a variety of onomatopoeic elements the soundscape idea is from Murray Schaffer that describes it as any acoustic environment. Villa Lobo's soundscape is composed by forest noise and indigenous people chant, emphasized by the singing without lyrics and requiring corporal gestures from the singers. Regarding copyrights, Villa Lobos actually did well. Gabriel Moreira, in his thesis about the indigenous idiom in Villa Lobo's music, presents that when there is an indigenous melody transcription, the composer quoted details from the primary source. If there is not, Villa Lobo's composed using a text from Mario de Andrade, putting himself in the position of an arranger or a harmonizer. Now, I'm going to move to a more analytical section of the indigenous idiom that Villalobos created. Within that idiom, he used ostinato, repeating a pattern that could be either melodic, harmonic, or rhythmic. And it came directly from indigenous songs. He frequently created the melody in neighbor notes and intervals of seconds with simple rhythm divisions. The rhythm division was predominantly balanced between strong and weak beats. It was drawn from the indigenous tribes that used percussion instruments and their body to the binary sub subdivisions. Another source that was used was parallel force and fifths. The text cannot be separate from the sound effects that was created by the composer because it was the combination of the sound of the vowels and consonants that would create the soundscape. Something very interesting is that this illusion of the savage and exotic in the music was also happening in other countries. Stravinsky was already using parallel force and fifths as a characteristic of the exotic version based on his own folklore tradition. The same way, Villalobos, being part of the modernist movement in the beginning of the 20th century, 
uh, also used Brazilian indigenous as exotic and savage. And throughout his life, the indigenous got different representations. There was exotic, as I said, but also the romantic, the mystic. But in all those representations, they were a result of an imagination. Most time, it was not accurate. There was a lot of European embellishment. At the same time that it was a Brazilian representation because they needed a concept of nation, it was different because it was not a European descendant. Hmm. Okay, so now let's change gears for a bit and let's talk about his 10th symphony called Amerindia, also known as Sumé Pater Padrium, Sumé, the father of the fathers. It was commissioned by the São Paulo city as a celebration for its fourth centenary. Fun fact, it was premiered in Paris in 1957. <laughs> the Brazilian premiere was only six months later. Mm. It was written for an orchestra, choir and soloist in five movements with the text of José Janchita. The second subtitle, Sumé Pater Patrium, Sumé Pater of Paters, refers to a pre-Columbian mytho mythological figure who was part of the indigenous Tamoyo Indian culture. Sumé is described as a beard old man, white as daylight, who came from the sea and roamed the coast, teaching agriculture the use of fire and social organization. The Catholic colonists spread the story that Sumé was in fact St. Thomas the Apostle. Villalobos takes this legend into the 16th century, projecting the civil, civ civilizing role played by Sumé onto an allegorical vision of the Jesuit priest José de Anchieta, one of São Paulo's founding fathers. Anchieta, who was canonized in 2014, is one of the most extraordinary figures in the early Brazilian history. Born in Canary Islands to a Basque father and a mother of Jewish origin, he entered the Jesuit order in 1551 and traveled to Brazil before the age of 20 as a volunteer missionary. He soon learned the Tupi language and wrote its first grammar. In spite of suffering from spinal condition, he climbed the coastal mountain range where in a tiny shack on January 1554, he celebrated the mass for the foundation of the town that would eventually become the vast metropolis of today. The shack became his home and it's now in the central of Sao Paulo. The conversation of the native native population to Christianity, the conversion of the native population <laughs> to Christianity is condemned today as a cultural mass massacre. But Anchieta's aim was in fact to protect the indigenous peoples from the slave trade operated by the Portuguese colonists. Even offering himself as a hostage to the native Indians during peace negotiations with the Portuguese. It is said that during this period of captivity, he worked a number of miracles and also wrote an epic poem. 
excerpts from his work are set in the extensive fourth movement of this symphony that we are going to listen. Nice. The 10th symphony. The first movement, entitled The Earth and Its Beams, it sounds weird in Portuguese too, <laughs> shows the primitivism and the exoticness pre presented in the orchestra. It is purely instrumental and it depicts the profusion of virgin forests. With each rehearsal number and the score, a new theme emerges. Some of these recur in later movements, undergoing minor developments or modification. Let's listen to the first movement. And we are going to listen to the orchestra of the symphonic, uh, the symphonic orchestra of Sao Paulo State and the choir of the Sao Paulo State. was the first a little bit of the first movement it sounds so hard there's like so many notes in the strings i know it's not a very popular symphony so i actually never heard it in person oh the second movement entitled uh wars war cry is a lament for lost innocence in which the chorus sings wordless melodies and the bass, representing the voice of the earth, calls on the native people to become masters of the earth. Let's listen to the second movement a little bit. I would like to share another another section of the second movement as well.
I wanted to share this section because it has the choir singing just uh, just singing without lyrics. According to Fabio Zanon, the third movement is a Beethovenian scherzo gig, jig, a regular feature of the Lobus late symphonies. The chorus sings settings of Tupi texts found in 18th and 19th century travel journals, suggesting the evolution of monkeys into builders of houses. The inference being that this only happened with the arrival of the Europeans. The choral texture is essentially reliant on parallelisms and a question-response structure, while a new character, a native Indian song by the baritone, also makes an appearance. what they mean by be like Beethovenian. It's very like fragmenty, not very much like something you can sing to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The fourth movement, as long as the first three put together, is the dramatic core of the piece. Its succession of episodes and dialogue and contra contrasting musical idioms produces an effect similar to that of the credo in a mass setting. Given that this movement is approximately, approximately I don't know how to say this word, 25 minutes long, almost enough to be, it's almost enough to be a symphony in itself. That's so long. Oh my gosh. We're going to listen to the whole thing just <laughs> two two sections this of this movement
So these lyrics were actually in Portuguese and I could understand, which is a kind of weird feeling because usually <laughs> I can't understand operas. And in this part, he's saying, he's asking, who is calling? Who is it crying? Mm. Who is it agonizing? Wow. And that's the part where the chorus goes in the chromatic descending scales. Well, let's go to the second section that I choose for the third movement. Oh, we are in the fourth. Fourth movement, yeah. is the most intense of this movement that is the most intense movement of the symphony mm. and here he is saying that the Sume, the father of the fathers finally arrived and he comes shining and in glory the fifth movement begins with an acknowledgement of the peace brought by the virgin and her son then the chorus greets the Holy Spirit and recalls the way in which kings and prophets have glorified the Virgin's name. The final episode celebrates the conversation of St. Paul and the founding of the village of St. Paul. Fabio Zanon describes this symphony as the symphony that was composed and what would be less uh, promising circumstances. A hybrid of symphony and oratorio based on a long and profound text in three different languages with references to two religions and so circumscribed by delicate political and ideological constraints. I believe that's why it is not a very popular symphony and it's not that much played so it was actually nice to get to know more about the history of the symphony let's listen to the fifth movement and that's the end of the movement mm -hmm. 
Wow. Yeah, me and Aaron are clapping. Beautiful. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, um, I was thinking about this symphony and how it had so many different cultures and languages within it. And there was a tribe chant for their god, but they end in Alleluia. So I mm. believe it is a little bit of what Brazil is. There is a mixture of cultures and uh, religion and colors and a little bit of everything, almost. So, yeah. To conclude, um, I believe that Villa Lobos gave the right credits on his manuscripts, um, as we saw. As I, I said before, there was the manuscripts that he would put the name of the tribe that he took it from. Um, but at that time, there was no law for copyrights in Brazil yet. Mm. It came only 40 years later. Mm. So I believe that the results of the use of the indi indigenous music and his and Villa Lobos music brought not only a nationalism to the country, but also marked strong characteristics of the Brazil to the exterior world. Yeah. There is no way to prove his real intentions because he made a lot of money with that. Mm -hmm. And he's still doing a lot of money with that. But um, the mindset, I believe that the mindset of the of that time regarding the use or cultural appropriation was different back then was yeah. different from nowadays yeah so um my last question would be how would it be if we went to a tribe and collected music and use it in music in our compositions how different would that be from that time back then? Or even when Dvorak did it? Um, challenges more than it was back then? Well, I think it uh, would be more culturally aware and ask permission before using and maybe like you know give credits to anyone who taught anything stuff like that although i don't know if i would personally do it anyway just because if one person of one tribe says like hey yeah use it that doesn't mean the whole tribe's like yeah use it so i think it's a complicated question but that's so it does get more complicated and more difficult because we're more aware and we try more to yeah I agree. I feel like I feel like if one of us out of the three of us, we would do everything that we could to make sure that it was in the right way and that we were doing the right thing or, we're, you know, doing the right credibility and recognition. Mm -hmm. And but I think I think also what may be a little bit different now than back then is that there's more people that can hold composers accountable I feel like I see a lot on the internet. I don't remember what it was. 
Oh, I'm going to remember it later, like two hours after we're done with the podcast. But there was recently like a group that um, composed something and it was using um, indigenous music. And it was like this huge thing on like Instagram of like doing that, like making posts about how wrong it was that the composer didn't credit or didn't acknowledge or, or um, say like anywhere on the composition that a lot of the melodies were from um the indigenous people and it's their music and i think that type of accountability is something that just didn't exist um for other composers of the past um so even if we if the three of us did something and we and we missed something somewhere i feel like there would be someone to hold us accountable for it yeah. um yeah that's that was my thought process <laughs> Yes, I agree. I I believe that uh, you and you said what I what I also concluded that we would have a lot more um, care and just being aware of the situation and all the copyrights, but also um, it would be I believe that it would be a lot um, a process harder to get the music published or something mm -hmm. yeah so, i think i think it's because of that accountability now that it's harder to do right like it's yeah i agree with you yeah yeah and yes so that was my project um i was really uh intrigued by researching it because it is about brazil but it is a part of Brazil that I didn't know. So it was really interesting researching about that. Yeah, it was interesting to hear. I didn't realize that it happened kind of everywhere, you know? Yeah, I feel like my knowledge of anything that's not Western of like what we learn basically, like our education, I really don't know anything about. Yeah. Um, but there, I feel sort of like a connection, like this kind of story, not story, but history. I, not that I haven't heard it before, but it is similar, I feel like, to Dvorak. And I hate to bring that up, but it's just no. interesting, like that I, that's like my only connection. But yeah. No, yes, definitely. And something that I forgot to mention that um, it, it, it was like Erin said, it was something that happened uh, in different parts of the world in different times mm. and also different ways for example Bartok that actually uh filed everything and and it was a, a big research about his folklore music so yes uh, and yes I agree too it, it was a very similar situation to Dvorak's yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for bearing with me. Oh my gosh, it was great. I this yeah. was I was enjoying it so much just sitting here. I wasn't reacting too much, just but it was all new information. I feel like my only exposure to like anything like of a composer in South America is like Hina Stera, who is from oh. Argentina. Like I feel like that's the only South American composer I've played off the top of my head. So learning about I mean I know who Vila Lobos is but I didn't know about Vila Lobos you know so I'm storing this in my my brain for the future it was wonderful so 
We can move to our second yes! half. Let's move to our second half. Well, hang on. First, we did our symphony series, you guys, which means we're officially done with grad school. <laughs> so proud of us. Yay, us. We did it. <laughs> Yay. We graduated. Yeah. Um, I realized, I don't think we did this last week, Rebecca. I think we forgot. Yeah. yeah, I realized this when I was editing the podcast. I was like, oh, we didn't do a Portuguese word of the day. Rebecca. <laughs> well, I mean, it's we're all at fault here. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh, I forgot to. So I forgot maybe... about this week too. <laughs> yeah, I know. But yeah. Wing it, wing it. What about can I ask you how to say one? Yes. Definitely celebration have we yes. done that though we did graduation i thought wait no? what's the word for a celebration celebrar or oh, celebração. We... no i don't think we did maybe not celebration but the yeah the ending are very similar i don't think we did okay 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 celebrar is celebrate just, to celebrate yeah and then yeah. what was the other one Celu celebração celebração we haven't yeah. done that i don't think we've done that one yeah i would remember this <laughs> there is another word that we've done that ends in like r like it ends in something else oh we did afinação Afin oh no afinação but there's another that ends in like the the celebrar like that ending we've done a word that ends like that which one aaron did you say no just something oh. But like that, it's not, I mean, ugh. I don't remember. We'll have to go back into the archives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, how was your tuning this week, you guys? Once again, it's been three days. <laughs> <laughs> For those listening, we've fil we were filmed. We've recorded these episodes pretty close to each other um, just because of our time constraint to submit our projects. So we're filming from the past. Filming. I keep saying filming. Recording from the past. So. Look at my tuning. Um, for the past couple of days, I think I did eight out of ten. Wow, stunning. Yeah, it was really fun to get yeah. to hang out with all of you guys. Yeah, that's good. Honestly, my reading is another ten out of ten Aww. because. Um, we graduated yesterday <laughs> um so that was a lot of fun and i'm so glad that we're done and it was nice like i felt the ceremony for being covid and i thought it was well it was nice it was hot and it was sunny but and i didn't get that i didn't really get a sunburn so that is factoring into my 10 out of 10 because i always get burned at anything i go to so Yes. Yeah, my week, I would also give a 10 out of 10. It's really nice to um, hang out with you guys and to have this moment of celebration of all the work we've done. So yeah, I was really happy. Oh, the weather was really nice too. Yeah. And for our listeners, we'll probably put, I mean, we had a graduation picture on our Instagram uh, story, but maybe we should like include one in a post or something. That'd be really cute. 
Yeah. Aaron's like, I'm on it. <laughs> I was always part of the plan. <laughs> Love. Stunning. Okay. <laughs> well, I guess that brings us to the end of the episode. Um, as always, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Apple Podcasts, and our episodes go up each Saturday at 7 a.m. Uh, thanks for listening. And this has been Out of Tune on Zoom. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye.